Well, the clock back there says 9.25, so I think that gives me about 90 minutes. <laughs> Last week, in John's Gospel, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, and he did it on a Sabbath day. And regarding the charge of Sabbath breaking, he said this. He said, my father is working until now, and I too am working. It, it was a defense, which in the eyes of his accusers, was worse than the deed itself. And we're told there that they were seeking to kill him, not only for breaking the Sabbath, but more fundamentally, for making God out to be his father and for him to be equal to God. Now this can be, perhaps, for Christians, a bit of a yawn that Jesus claims to be God. We accept it, we're used to it, we're familiar with it. But it is an outrageous claim. And as an outrageous claim, it often provokes rage. When I was in college, I went to Villanova. You might know them as the Big East champions, but I went to, Vill- I, I went to Villanova as a Catholic school. And uh, we had to take, everyone had to take three courses of religious instruction to graduate. I mean, I was an electrical engineering major, but you still had to take nine credits of religion to graduate at a Catholic college. This was in 1980. I don't know if it's this way today. And it was in my junior year, I had just converted to Christianity, and I took a New Testament course. I think I may have told this story here before, I'm not sure. But anyway, the professor was a very intimidating, loud, and brash, and aggressive critic of any form of traditional Christianity. I can still remember him making a poor little Catholic girl in the front row cry because she raised her hand to admit that she believed in angels. And he stood over and he mocked her and he mocked her and he mocked her and he mocked her until she just broke down. That's the kind of guy this was. And he would insist, he would insist that the New Testament never teaches that Jesus is God. Doesn't even claim it. Now, I was reading the New Testament a lot because I was a new convert and I knew this was nonsense. So he and I would have some interesting exchanges. One one time, he came and stood on my desktop while I was sitting. Big, barrel-chested, angry man standing over me. And we had a long 10-minute or so exchange like this in the middle of the class, right? You feel like Fay Ray face-to-face with King Kong. But... uh, So we discussed various passages at length, but what it was for me, it was a reminder and it was a glimpse of the rage that the claim that Jesus is God can evoke. Like I said, it might be a yawn to you. It's not a yawn to them. And in John chapter 5, it evokes murderous rage. It turns out that people are perfectly fine you know, with, a, with Jesus, the moral teacher, or even the prophet, or a noble and holy man who shows us how to live. I mean, it seems to me like the networks, the television networks, have warehouses full of people who they bring out at Easter and Christmas just to instruct us that Jesus is, in fact, not divine. And they'll lavish praise on a merely human Jesus, 
kind of domesticated Jesus. But a divine Jesus is a threat. He's an unavoidable Jesus. He's going to have to be worshipped and obeyed. And people sense this. They're right to sense it. And, and with our text today, we can begin to see why they're right. So we're starting in John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus continues his defense with a series of claims, new claims, but they're really jaw-dropping claims, and they're going to do nothing to calm the fears of his accusers. So we'll make three points. They're there in the back of the bulletin, back inside page. The son, the life giver, and the judge. First, the son. So John 5, verse 19, Jesus gives this answer. Very truly, I tell you this, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. It's a, it's a statement about his dependence, his subordination, his submission to the father. Right? The, the very first gospel, verse of this gospel told us, the first verse of John's gospel tells us that Jesus is God. And though he is God from all eternity... As man, he submits to and obeys his father. He's equal to the father in his being, but he's subordinate to the father in the outworking of our salvation in history. Equal as God, obedient as man. But, but, he hasn't told the Jewish authorities this yet. All they have is this. I do only what I see the father doing. In one sense, he's trying to help them out a little bit. He's trying to say... Look, I'm not competing with the Father. I'm not going to obscure the Father. I'm not a second deity alongside of the Father. I do only what I see the Father do. I do only what I see the Father do. Notice what this claim implies. It implies that Jesus has a kind of like unclouded, uninhibited, interior sight or vision of what the Father is doing. That he sort of mystically sees it. It also implies this. It implies apparently that the father was, in his own way, working to heal on the Sabbath. It implies that the father was, in his own way, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And Jesus sees this thing, these actions of God the Father, with a sort of interior vision. And he works together with the father as one. So, he says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. By the way, this ratchets up the claim. He went from, I only do what I see the Father doing. Now he says something stronger. He says, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Whatever whatever the Father does. Well, what is it that the Father does? Every single event in the world. Every action of God in heaven and on earth, the whole upholding and sustaining and guiding of all things, at all times, the Son sees it, He perceives it, and He does it with the Father. Now try and put yourself in the shoes of these first century Jewish authorities who have a carpenter in front of them saying this, an itinerant rabbi. While the Son is walking around in Palestine, he is upholding the whole cosmos. I am intimately involved with every falling sparrow in every nation, 
with every human thought and action everywhere. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And so you have this identity of action. It's not just identity in action, though. It's unlimited in scope. This doing whatever the Father does. This complete, total unity of willing and doing. This means the Son is equal to the Father. Only God can do whatever God does. And so this is how Jesus exegetes or interprets or narrates or reveals the Father to us. So the potency of this should not be lost. In one verse, one verse, Jesus has claimed to be fully obedient, fully dependent on the Father, and at the same time, fully divine, the doer of all and only and absolutely everything God does. It's breathtaking. He might as well have said, I'm the perfect self-disclosure of the God whose name is so exalted and ineffable and holy that out of reverence you refuse to pronounce it. He probes a little deeper. He gives the reason in verse 20, the reason for this seeing and doing. He says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. This is a beautiful thing. It is the eternal love between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. That is the basis. That grounds the Father showing the Son everything he does. Everything that Jesus does on earth, everything the Father shows him flows out of this mutual love that they share from all eternity in the being of God. It's often useful, I think, if you think of a religion or a system of thought, to ask, what does this system put at the heart of the universe? And in the Christian system, it is self-giving, reciprocal love. Unstained, undiminished, unlimited, self-giving love, which is at the heart of the universe. This is the love that sent the Son, and this is the love that shows the Son. What to do. And of course, this is a not another not so thinly veiled claim to deity. No one is loved by God such that God shows him everything he does except this unique son. And Jesus says, The Father's going to show me even greater works than these so that you might amaze. Yes, the Father showed me the miracle at the wedding of Cana. And the father showed me the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool, but he will show me greater things. And these greater things, the first of these greater things is in our second point, the life giver. Verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now again, it's hard to, to, to uh, put yourself back and, and think of what this would sound like to first century Jewish ears. The, fir- the, the central prayer of the synagogue liturgy, the Jewish liturgy, which we think may date even from pre-Christian times, 
Right? The center of it consists of a prayer that has 18 benedictions in it, 18 blessings of the name of God. And the second benediction praises God as the one who gives life. I'll read a part of it. O Lord, you are forever mighty. You bring back the dead to life. You have power to save. Out of loving kindness, you sustain the living. With great compassion, you revive the dead. You keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, Lord of mighty deeds? And who may be compared to you, O King, who brings death and life and causes salvation to spring forth? You are to be trusted to bring back the dead to life. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. That's the second benediction of the synagogue liturgy. And this is the giving of all life, natural and supernatural. But the accent in Jesus' words is on indestructible resurrection life, given now, given at the end of the age, with the resurrection of the dead. Right? Jesus is claiming then to be and to do what the God of the second benediction does. That is how this claim would be heard by first-generation Jewish ears. The God of Abraham who gives life to the dead, who calls things that are not as though they were. Jesus is saying, I, I am that one. Notice the son says, I give life to whom I am pleased to give it. You know, all this talk about the son's obedience and his submission, and he he does whatever he sees the father doing, and only what, what the father's doing. At the same time, Jesus says, I'm not a robot. I'm a personal agent, and I give life at my own good pleasure. It's precisely in obeying the father that Jesus becomes the icon or the image of a fully liberated, flourishing human being. Right? We have this, this problem in, in modernity here, right? Where we think that obedience to authority constricts a human's flourishing and their liberty. And Jesus, who always and only and always and totally, in every facet, obeys the Father, says, I give life to whomever I please to give it. His own human agency is liberated by his obedience. This life-giving power that the Lord has is not just something he does, it's something he is. So here the claim gets even perhaps wider and deeper. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, as the Father has life in himself, so the Son he has granted to also have life in himself. This is what the classical Christian tradition has called aseity. Aseity. I'll spell it because I, it's, it's, I think it's one of the answers in the book. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It means this. It means God exists of himself, from himself. He does not receive being. He does not receive life. He simply is. He is life. He's underived, ever replete, fully alive, the living God. And so Jesus claims to have that property, even as the Father has life in himself, so he has given it to the Son to have life in himself. And so he's piling up blasphemous, crucifiable claims. You can see why I thought my professor was a little crazy. 
Like you don't have to, I'm not scratching below the surface of John's gospel here. So Jesus piles up these claims. He says the Father has granted that he too, the Son, has life in himself. How does John open the gospel? In him, in the Son, was life. And that life is the light of men. This is a very tightly constructed passage, though. Being life is the root. It's the taproot of Jesus' prerogative to raise the dead. Who does he give this life to? Verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I think it's important to see this, right? Salvation consists in eternal life. Because salvation consists in communion with the God who is eternally alive, who has life in himself. Salvation is the gift of God himself to us. It's often, I think, construed poorly, like we think God wanted to do something really, really, really spectacular for us. And he thought, hey, how about everlasting life? That would be really super. No, everlasting life is intrinsic to what it means to commune with the God who has life in himself. So in in a certain sense, we would say this, there can be no other gift that salvation is other than everlasting life because the Son has life in himself. It's a powerful passage. Jesus says, if you hear my word and you believe in me, you're already acquitted. In Paul's language, you're justified. He says they will not be judged. Doesn't mean you won't be evaluated, judged in the sense of evaluated. It means you won't be judged in the sense of condemned. You will not be condemned if you believe in Jesus. You will be evaluated. You will not be condemned. They have passed, he says, they've crossed over from death to life. This is the heart of the gospel. If you believe the gospel, this Jesus, there's a real sense in which death itself, the resurrection from the dead, your final judgment, and your verdict of acquittal have already been passed on you. They are in the past. This is what the New Testament means when it says you have died with Christ. Jesus claims that his word, that his voice can accomplish this for whoever hears and believes. Look at verse 25. He says, a time is coming and has now come. A very important phrase. A time is coming... That is the future time of the resurrection. Future time of the judgment just spoken of. Right? But this time now is. It's already here. Not in its fullness, of course. It's not consummated, but it's broken in to this age. The future's been inaugurated. Jesus loves this phrase in John's gospel. A time is coming and now is. Right? In that time, he says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will live. This is what the gospel does. It spiritually quickens you. It's a resurrection and it's an anticipation or a participation in the resurrection from the dead to come at the end of the age. So the gospel is not a thing over here that we believe now. And then we, you know, we muddle our way through the Christian life and then we get resurrection from the dead over here. The gospel is that resurrection from the dead already being tasted now. Quickening people. So, 
The voice of Jesus accomplishes this. Like Ezekiel's vision, he raises men out of the valley of dry bones by his own life-giving breath. And so he's standing in front of his accusers, and he's saying something like this, I am already, already, right now, raising men from the dead, acquitting them and giving them eternal, everlasting life. Healing the man on the Sabbath is just a sign of my authority to do all this. That's the nature of Jesus' answer to his accusers here. Finally, the third point. Another greater work that the Father will show the Son is that he's the judge. The Father, he says in verse 22, judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the Son. Again, simply preposterous from the standpoint of a first century Jewish authority. God The God of Israel alone is the judge of all the earth. Nothing could be clearer than that. And now Jesus says, your father, our God, he's entrusted all judgment to me. Of course, the the father's clearly involved. You can see that in verse 30. Jesus says he judges only by what he hears. His judgment is just because he hears from the father. But here, our Lord is clearly referring to a future Not a present judgment. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. It's a little complicated. It goes like this. There's a time that is coming, and now is, and is still coming. There's a time that is coming, it now is, and it is still coming. And here it's only coming. It's only future. Jesus does not add, and now is. He simply says a time is coming. And in this future time, those who are in the graves, in the cemetery, will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. That's what your conversion was a a foretaste of. No, no, No bugler at any cemetery can accomplish this. The voice of Jesus, who is life itself, shall raise the dead out of the cemeteries, out of the ground, out of the sea. It's that voice. And here you can see the two claims that Jesus is making here. There are our second and our third point. The claim to be life itself, the claim to be the universal judge. They entail one another. They're locked together. To be the judge means you're the one who raises the dead. To be the one who raises the dead means you're the judge. I can tell you this. The Jewish authorities got more than they bargained for in this defense of why you healed this guy on the Sabbath. We have here yet another claim to deity. I am the universal judge. I am the one who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So I want to close with three applications, three distillations of this text. The first is this. There's a well-known, or pretty well-known in reform circles anyway, telegraph. It comes from New Year's Day in 1937. And it was sent by the dying founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. A man named J. Gresham Machen, very famous man in his day in the early 20th century, testified before Congress. He was a public figure. Machen is out in the upper Midwest somewhere. I think he's in one of the Dakotas. And he sends this telegraph to his colleague back in Philadelphia, John Murray, the great Scottish New Testament scholar. 
And the telegraph contained Machen's last words. And they've become well-known in reform circles. These are his last words. He died as a very young man. He, he contracted an illness while he was out in North Dakota. It was, it was the middle of the winter. But the telegraph said this. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. It's that obedience in its full scope which is seen in our first point today. The Son does only, all, always and everywhere what He sees the Father doing. What the Father shows Him in love. That obedience, perfect, personal, entire and exact, is our salvation. Right? That obedience displaces your disobedience. I'm going to assume that everyone in here disobeyed God at some point this week. Probably at some point this morning. And if it's not commission, it's the, the omission of the failure to love the Lord our God with our whole hearts and souls and minds and strength and with the fullness of gratitude. We don't have to think of disobedience in monstrous terms. We are perpetually disobedient. And our disobedience is covered by that flawless life of which Jesus speaks in this text here today. His, un, his righteousness covers your unrighteousness. His purity covers your impurity. You need that obedience every second of every day. It's charged to you and it's counted as yours. It's as if we ourselves rendered it, that very flawless, radiant obedience. Thank God for it. There is no hope without it. Second point I want you to see in this text is that the gospel here is big and it's bold and it's clear. Because Jesus is the divine son and the life giver and the judge, when you hear his word, his cemetery emptying voice, and you believe and trust him, you yourself are raised even now from death to life. This is what the gospel is. It is not a, a program of, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps or some kind of moral renovation. In Jesus, when you believe him, you are pronounced righteous in advance of the final judgment. It's like you have the verdict in your pocket when you're walking into the judge. And that means for you who believe there is right now, not just later, right now as well as later, no condemnation. No condemnation. The gospel is this gospel of resurrection, acquittal in the life-giving judge. Celebrate it. Rejoice in it. Exult in the grace of God in this one. And finally, the father-son relationship in the text has an end in view. There's a sort of a purpose for disclosing the relationship he has with the father in the text. You can see it in verse 23. It says this, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Right? They're equally divine. They're one in will. They're one in action. They're to be equally worshipped and adored. Whoever, Jesus says, does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father. This is in one way the crux of the matter. Jesus' opponents thought this was possible. They thought you could honor the Father and bypass the Son. Modern deists 
think this is possible, right? They think, well, I, I believe in God. I can honor God. I don't need the sun. Other world religions think this is possible. Jesus says to fail to honor the son is to misrepresent or distort the father. So it's this son, right? It's not the Jesus of my college professor. And it's not the Jesus of almost every Christmas and Easter time television special. Right? This son of this text is worthy of divine honor. And doing so, Jesus is saying, does not diminish or obscure, but rather magnifies the Father. This is the thing a first century Jew would have found incomprehensible. It magnifies the Father. For we confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an incomparable Son who you are in, who has laid hold of your life, and whom you trust. He is life-giving Lord, universal judge, because he is the Son, who while being equal to the Father, does nothing by himself. Worship him. Amen.